Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. In 2016, Leila Slamani's second novel, Lullaby, stunned the literary world with its chilling account of the death of two children at the hands of their nanny. Its deep insight into the socio-political landscape of modern France earned Slamani the Prix Goncourt, France's most prestigious literary prize. French President Emmanuel Macron even appointed her Francophone Affairs Minister in order to promote the French language and culture across the world. Well, in this week's episode, we were joined by Slamani to discuss her new novel, The Country of Others, inspired by Slamani's grandparents and their lives in post-World War II Morocco. It's a fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for the Intelligence Square discount on Leila's new book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Thanks so much for that introduction. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with me, Shahid Abari. I'm really delighted to introduce our guest tonight, who is Leila Slomani, an award-winning Franco-Moroccan author who has written several highly acclaimed books. She's the first Franco-Moroccan woman to win France's most prestigious literary prize, the Prix Goncourt, which she won for Lullaby, a really daring and testing domestic thriller about modern motherhood and the labour of care intersected by the complexities of race and class. Leila is also a journalist and frequent commentator on women's and human rights. She's French President Emmanuel Macron's personal representative for the promotion of the French language and culture. And she's here today to talk about her new book, The Country of Others, which is the first in a trilogy, or what will be a trilogy, about her own family. And the book deals with the life of Slomani's maternal grandparents during Morocco's period of decolonization in the 1950s. Hello, Leila. Hello. It's lovely to have you. I'm sort of delighted and thrilled that you're joining us from Morocco. It feels like the right place for you to be because I've been in Morocco reading the book. I think that's the, the first thing to say that congratulations on the novel. It really immerses you in a place and a particular time as well. Just to provide our audience with a sense of the book without giving too much away, the Country of Others tells a story of a young white French woman called Mathilde who falls in love with Amin, a Moroccan soldier who's been stationed in her home in Alsace during the Second World War. And it begins just at that moment where she's overcome by this deep, sweeping passion. And it prompts her to leave France to build a life with Amin in Morocco in, in, in his village. And life there on, on Amin's modest farm is entirely different. Uh, she's living in a different cultural and religious context with different norms, and it's a challenge. And the book is about their relationship, their children, their family, but also about these two nations, Morocco and France, and how they are entangled in this period and how 
the lives of people like Matilda Amin, their daughter Aisha and Amin's sister Selma are inflected by the experiences of colonialism, of exile, of expatriation and the struggle for independence. And it's an incredibly ambitious book and successful, I think, in its ambitions in thinking about those things, but also about desire and class too. It's also a novel about your own family history, as we've suggested. I'm reminded that Lullaby was an entirely fictional book, of course, but it also drew on your own reflections of motherhood. This novel, The Country of Others, again, fictional, but drawing from personal experience and your heritage. Tell us how that bears on this novel and how we would detect it. Uh, As you say, yes, it's very fictional, even if it's inspired by my grandparents. I was very lucky as a child because I I spent a lot of time with my grandparents in the farm they used to have in in Meknes, in the center of of Morocco. And my grandmother was a great storyteller. She was really fascinating. And I remember when we were uh, children with my sisters, it was very, very hot in my grandmother's farm during the summer and we couldn't sleep. And she would say, okay, come in my in my bedroom. And she would tell us stories, wonderful stories, very scary, very cruel. And that's maybe why I write so so dark and so cruel stories. But I was fascinated by her. And I was oh, I would always ask her, tell me about your, uh, your own childhood, what it was to be in Alsace, and tell me when you arrived in Morocco. And I'm not sure that my grandmother told me the truth. What I know is that she told me great stories. So I don't know if what I'm telling you today in my in my book is fiction or reality. And the truth is, I don't really care. What I care about is to tell you that I was fascinated by those stories. And I hope that my reader will be too. I was looking at my grandmother and telling myself, she, she's not a real human being. She's a character. She's the character of a novel. She's the character of a movie. And, uh, you know, my grandfather, also he was fascinating one day he couldn't swim but one day he was with his swimming suit next to the swimming pool and he had a scar on his belly and I said what is this scar and it was nothing he had just a surgery appendicectomy or something very you know very banal and I asked him what is this and he said you know one day I fought with a tiger in a forest in Germany And I was like, wow, a tiger in a forest in Germany. And when I came back to school, I said to all my friends, you know, my my grandfather, he fought with a tiger in Germany. And of course, everyone made fun at me saying there is no tiger in Germany. And I was not angry at him. I was like, wow, he has this great power. He can tell a story and everyone believes in this story. So... I can't tell you if it's fiction or if it's the truth, but it's what I've believed in for many, many years. And for me, it's the truth. And and sometimes the, the truth is more dramatic than than fiction, that, that the events that you describe are powerful, theatrical, overwhelming. One of the very powerful themes of the book is is the experience of of quite extreme dislocation. Mathilde is dislocated from Alsace and and, and in her new home, she's dislocated, although she increasingly adjusts to uh, a Moroccan Muslim culture. Her children, there's a a very striking moment when Aisha, her daughter, 
is sent to a, a convent school in in Morocco, and she's she notices the the whispering natives and the children, the Europeans playing hopscotch, and she doesn't know where to go, where she belongs. Um, what did you want to convey about this experience of dislocate dislocation, and and why does it matter? Why write a whole novel about it? First, you have to imagine that at the end of the war, because the books begin in 1945, the dislocation is global. The world is completely dislocated but by what just happened because of the horror and the cruelty of the war, because of the fact also that people like my grandfather, the soldiers from coming from Morocco, Algeria, they went to France for the first time and they fought for France. And then when they come back to their own country, they are treated again like a like indigenous, like uh, with a lot of racism. And I think that everything is turned uh, turned around. People, the, all the rules, all the, the way people were looking at the world, everything has changed. So I wanted to draw a parallel between the life of this family and the life of the two countries, Morocco and France. In Morocco, people are looking for more independence. Women are looking for emancipation. And at the same time, in this family, people also, all the individuals are looking for emancipation and for freedom, but they don't know what is their identity. They try to understand who they are in this world where you you are supposed to choose a side. And um, uh, the question I, I, I try to ask is, are we always forced to choose a side? Is it possible to decide not to choose? Is it possible to decide to be two things at the same time and to decide that you have no enemies or that your enemies are not maybe the one you think they are. So this is about ambiguity. Can we choose to be gray? Can we choose choose to be ambiguous? Can we choose complexity instead of choosing to fight against one side and to say, I am this and those ones are my, my enemies? And I think that this a particular period of the end of uh, colonialism in, in Morocco was very interesting to try to understand that when you live in uh, the, the present of your life, you never really know if you make the good choice. You choose one side, but you don't know. Uh, maybe in 50 years, in uh, 100 years, you will say, okay, I did uh, the wrong choice or I did the good choice. But in the present, you do what you can do. And you try just to protect your family and to protect the, the one you love. So, yeah, this, this was really about ambiguity and complexity and nuance. Yeah, I think I understand that. And I understand that from reading the book. I think that's what, what you accomplishment. As, as you were talking, I was remembering Fanon writing about the experience of fighting. I was very for, much, yeah, yeah, I was very much influenced by Fanon. And I, I read it all the time when I was writing the book. And um, he was very, very important for me. And also what he says about humiliation and about domination. He says that when you humiliate someone, he's going to humiliate himself, someone else. And that um, the, colon the colonist, when he humiliates the, the Arab or the, the, the African, this man is going himself to humiliate someone. And very often this someone is a woman. Because when he comes home at the end, the only person that he can dominate is his wife or his children. So it's also a lot about this um, this question of domination, the fact that you always have to dominate someone. Yeah, I, I that that's so interesting because I was remembering I I wasn't thinking of that moment, but you're absolutely right that that is Fanon, of course. And I but I was thinking of of um, much more simple, which is that Fanon's sense of betrayal that having been forced to fight for the motherland. 
and then to be rejected by the motherland, that it creates a peculiar kind of sense of betrayal. And Amin feels that. But in your novel, Mathilde also has that ambiguity and that grayness. It's not simply a case of having left the place she calls home and having and being a stranger, but that that she is that there is a a sense of belonging to both places too. Is that right? Absolutely. And it's very interesting that you're using this word betrayal because it's something that I've always felt as a as a Moroccan woman who used to speak French in my family. I come from a bourgeois background and in my family we were francophone. And very often in Morocco people would say that I'm a traitor, a traitor to my culture, to my religion, because also I'm a free woman and I drink and I smoke and I do whatever I want to, to do. And people say, you you betray your your culture, you betray the tradition, you're a traitor. And that's also, for me, this book and this trilogy is an answer to all the people who are treating me like that. I try to explain to them that... uh, I'm not a traitor, of course. I, I am the the product of a mixture, a very s- strange mixture between my grandfather and my grandmother. I am the child of colonist and colonized. I'm the child of dominant and dominated, of the goods and the bads. I, I don't have a side. I can't choose a side. It, it's impossible. And the only side that I choose is freedom. Freedom to be myself, freedom to invent myself, to be a free individual. And um, I don't want to, I, I, I don't care about being proud of one culture or choosing one culture against one another. I think that you are not your culture. Your culture is what you make of, of it. And uh, I choose to be in a culture that respects people, that uh, gives importance to the dignity of every individual. So this question of, uh, yeah, of betrayal is very, very important in, in my life because I've always felt that I was I was not a good French, I was not a good Arab, I'm not good at anything. So yeah, I'm a traitor and a happy traitor. But it, 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 you're a happy traitor, of course. But also, I mean, it is a, it is a, a, a love letter too. Also, it seems to me that, of precisely because perhaps your childhood and your memories of of visiting your grandparents. But there is also beauty in this account of this 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 tiny village, this farm, this community of of people who are dislocated. It seems to me there's deep affection here too. I think that would be right to say. Absolutely. It's like living on an island. I've always had the feeling that my family tried to build a little island and that we were like a a whole bunch of Robinson Crusoe living all together on our island. Sometimes you feel lonely. Sometimes you feel uncomfortable because you have the feeling that maybe you should get involved and you should belong to the rest of the world and you should fight with the others and that maybe you are selfish living on your island. But sometimes it's so wonderful to live in this island and to have those bonds that are only bonds of love and affection and emotion. So, yeah, it's a mixed feeling. Sometimes it's very beautiful and sometimes you can feel yeah, very lonely. Yeah. One one of the things, Leila, that I, I hadn't understood about this period, because, of course, the British colonial British colonial history is so, is, is so distinctly different, I think, from French. Absolutely, history, very different. I, but one of the things that I hadn't understood, but I understood better from reading your book was quite how entangled 
Morocco and France are in this post-war moment. And so in your novel, we have lots of expat French Europeans living in the farm opposite Mathilde and Amin. There's, there's Roger who joins a, a kind of white defense league increasingly as the, the independence movement becomes increasingly violent. There's Mademoiselle Fabre, I think, who, uh, who, who, who who's learned local culture and, and is, and, and dealing medicines in the, in the village. And I, I hadn't quite registered quite how entangled the communities are, that there would be that presence there. And I wondered what kind of research you did to, to capture this society. First, I read a lot of books, of course, uh, his, books of history about this period. And then I tried in the in the French National Library, you have a lot of archives and you can find diaries, letters uh, that were sent from Morocco to people in, in France uh, telling about day-to-day lives in the farms, in the, in the cities. And also, of course, I interviewed my own family, my grandmother, my aunts, uh, all the people uh, I know that lived this, uh, this period. And you know what was very interesting is that today when you speak about Morocco in, in the West, people think of Moroccan people as immigrants. Moroccan people, they come to Europe and they tend to forget that 60 years ago or a century ago, a lot of poor people from the from the West came to our country. Poor French came to Algeria, to Morocco, sp- thinking that maybe they would have a farm and become rich and have domestic. But we had also Italian, Spanish people who were very poor. And I wanted to people to remember that uh, immigration was not uh, always from the south to the north, but a lot of people from the north came to our countries. And that's the story of colonization and I think that uh, too many people forget about that and they wonder why uh, there's so many Moroccan today in, in Europe but remember why because you came to our country yeah. first so I think it's interesting also to to speak about that about all the movements between the, the Mediterranean Sea first it was from north to south and of course now it's from south to north which, which is why it's such a uh, uh a spectacular tragedy where in a way as well when the struggle happens for independence when neighbors are 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 pitted against each other in that way in which you record as well i, I want to ask you about your character mathilde because she was well, to, to my mind she seemed a very unusual woman but i wonder perhaps if that's because i don't understand the history and the context but she is she is certainly independent minded and brave in forging a new life on her own, essentially, in this new place. But she's also, she's led by her desires. You're quite explicit about this, that she is, she is sexed. It is also her desire that takes her to Morocco. And sex is a part of this history too, that you want to tell. Tell me about this. Absolutely. And when you say that sex is a part of this, it's very important to to remember, and Fanon talks a lot about this, that colonization was also a sexual enterprise. When people decided, uh, French people decided to penetrate the African continent, it's also a sexualized vision of uh, of the world. And when you see the old maps of uh, of Africa or Asia, it's always a woman with naked, you know, an, an African woman like this or 
for a Maghrebi woman. And there was this idea that going to Africa or going to Asia was also for the white men a way to experience a different sex, different sexuality, very savage, something like, like that. And I think that Mathilde, she is influenced by that. And she, she wants to go there because she wants adventure. She wants, she read Karen Blixen. She read Alexandra David Nil. She read a lot of, of novels and of books about foreign countries. And I think that she has a very, um, yeah, mythologic vision of, uh, of Africa and of, of Morocco. Uh, what I wanted to, to do with the character of Mathilde is, um, to build a complex character. Sometimes she's very likable because she's, as you said, adventurous. She's very generous. She's brave. But at the same time, sometimes she's very annoying because she's frivolous. She's uh, selfish. Sometimes she acts like a child and uh, she can be racist even sometimes. And um, I wanted to show that she she's not a perfect woman, of course. She's just a human being with her flaws, with her failures, with her uh, indecision. She wants to seduce a lot. She wants to have parties sometimes and uh, she doesn't understand that her husband is fighting for the farm and that it's very difficult. So this is a very modern woman and um, it's something that she has from my grandmother. I think that the more I made research about this period and the more I was uh, surprised and amazed by my own grandmother because I understood how difficult it must have been for a woman in the 40s to decide to marry a Muslim man, an African, and to go with him and what she probably endured it when she arrived in, in Morocco in terms of racism, in terms of poverty, of uh, difficulty to learn the language, to learn the culture. So uh, I like that in the character of Mathilde is that she's very respectful of um, other people's culture. And she decides at the moment she arrives to learn Arabic, she decides to understand. She doesn't want to be on the side. She doesn't want to be just a French woman and um, just enjoying the, the good weather and uh, the, the landscape of, of Morocco. She she wants you to belong. Yeah. I'm, as you were talking, I was remembering, uh, forgive me if I've misremembered it, but a moment where she, I think she's haggling for something in the market and she gets a, a good price and she feels she's tempted to, to reveal her face because she wants to, to, to show the, the, the vendor that actually She's a European woman who's managed to secure a good price and she wants to boast. But then she thinks, no, I won't. I will. I will. And it strikes me that she is negotiating complicated things that on the one hand, she has a kind of status as a European, a powerful European woman. But then she's also uh, an ignorant European woman who can be duped by the vendor. And Absolutely. she's also a woman. And all of these things are in play in a complicated way in, in, in the novel too. And in a comic way as well, I think. But you know, I think that we've, uh, we've all experienced that when you go to another country and you live there. The first time that you feel, okay, now I understand people think that maybe I belong to this country. I speak the language well enough that people speak to me like uh, an, a native. And that's something you feel proud. It's, it's even ridiculous, but you can feel very proud of that. Yeah, yeah. But it, 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 it is a funny experience, that, isn't it? I wanted to ask you about something that happens in the book, which I, I don't think is a spoiler, but this is that Mathilde is, 
has ambitions for her sister-in-law Selma. Selma should be educated as well as her daughter Aisha. And 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 Matilda herself comes to occupy a really important role in the community. She trains in, in a kind of village medicine. She sets up a clinic, essentially. Why was that important? What 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 what, what are you doing there with Matilda? Uh, you, you have to know that in the 40s in Morocco, the nationalists, the people who were fighting at the beginning for independence, were people very much influenced by France and in general by the ideas of the, of the West and especially the idea concerning women. And those men uh, began to say that Moroccan women should go to school, that Moroccan women should go out from the houses and stop to wear uh, veil and traditional dresses, and that it was impossible to build a modern country without women. And for the first time in the history of, uh, of Morocco, women are going to go to, to school, to university. And this is a very, very important time for, for women. It's going to change completely. It's a revolution that is going to change completely the destiny of the Moroccan woman. But of course, um, even if this little elite is defending the emancipation of women, the majority of the population is against. And a, a lot of, uh, of men, a lot of women also are going going to fight uh, against that. And also, I wanted to show the hypocrisy of a lot of men. Men like uh, Amin, he's okay to marry a European woman. He wants his own daughter to go to school, but he's absolutely against the idea that his sister could go to school or to go to, go to university or could marry a European man. So there is always, you know, a difference between your wife, your own life, and the life of, uh, of your sister. And um, Mathilde's... Um, She's a feminist, and um, when she arrives, the thing that maybe scandalizes her the most is poverty first, and then the situation of women. And so she's trying to fight against poverty and against the difficulty of life, especially for farmers, by doing this uh, little clinic. And my grandmother really did this clinic that lasted until she, she died, and she was very, very much. She was loved and she was adored in the in the countryside where she did the, the clinic. And I remember that when she died five years ago, uh, so they put her body on a, in a car and in, on two or three kilometers, you could find people waving and saying goodbye to her to her body and people very old and the the daughter, the grand the, the grandmother and the great great grandmother because she she took care of uh, of them. And I think that it's. Uh, because of her that my mother became a doctor and my aunt and my uncle because she was so obsessed by the idea of taking care of people, healing them, uh, make them suffer less that they were influenced to become doctors. That's very moving. I, I, I can see why you 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 give Mathilde that quality of that she is that she cares and she wants to to find some way to express that care in that community. I, I, I wondered if one of the things, in a way that, that, that theory that it is connected to your grandmother is more beautiful than the question I'm going to ask you. But I, I, I was thinking structurally about the book and if you were trying to suggest that there is a connection between women's right to self-determination, which is what Mathilde is, is exploring, and a nation's right to self-determination, if those two struggles are happening in parallel and if they are connected in some way. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's um, a, a passage in the book where Selma, the, the sister of uh, of Amin, is saying all the men in the street are uh, screaming independence, uh, freedom. And we women, we are screaming independence, freedom, but men won't listen to us. So there is also what I want what I wanted to show is this parallel between the fact that men are giving a lot of importance to freedom and to independence. But when it comes to their sister, to their daughter, to their wife, they don't care about their independence and their emancipation. So, yeah, yeah, of course, I wanted to draw this this parallel. It was very important for me. Yeah, I, I, you're saying this very casually, but I think it's a really big part of the book and <laughs> something that not all of us think about, actually. I think it, that your, your novel really helps us to think about how independence movements for a nation might be in sometimes in tension with and in tandem with the, the rights of women for self-independence too in the part Yeah, and you know, play. the independence in, in all Africa, it was a, a story of men, of men with men deciding for yeah. the destiny of this country, what we are going to do as, it was a very patriarchal vision of the, the future of those societies. The idea that women could uh, be uh, implicated in this, uh, this story was not at, at all on the table. And uh, I wanted to show that it's very beautiful, of course, independence, but no one think about the the woman in this story no one sees that a woman will completely betrayed because they say oh we are going to give you schools and we are going to give you rights but at the end of the day when morocco became independent no rights no school nothing women were at home as at the beginning so that's also something i wanted to show is that uh, okay they believed in very beautiful values but the values were only for men yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just to, 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 to continue, Leila, a little bit about what I thought was unusual about the book. And I think there were lots of things that were unusual, but, and this is something that I, I noticed of Lullaby too, which is that we know to think about race and the colonial history of France and of Morocco, of course. But in, for you, it always seems to me impossible not to, to think about those things intersected by class. Uh, and, and in Lullaby, I remember very distinctly that, that there is the economic difference between the, 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 the nanny and the protagonist is, uh, the, the, the mother is very powerful. And in this novel too, I think that the, the, the racial difference or the ethnic difference and the national difference is intersected by money, by class. And I wanted to ask you about that, about why that's important, how that's important, how you're trying to register that in this novel. Of course, it's important for me because I've always been, I'm an Arab, I'm a Moroccan, but I'm also a bourgeois. And um, I know that the fact that I'm a bourgeois make me in a certain way less Arab. I can remember when I was a student in France, one day I was speaking about the fact that I was a Moroccan and that uh, I had to endure racism. And a woman said to me, but you're not really an Arab, you're in Sciences Po. And what she meant is that, okay, you you belong to the bourgeois class. We don't consider you like a real Arab. An Arab is supposed to be poor. An Arab is supposed to live in the suburb. Is supposed to be her mother is supposed to be a nanny or a woman who clean a cleaning woman. So I've always been very conscious of that, very aware of that, and that's why when people want to put me in the box of the victim or I say, no, I don't want to, to 
act as if I was what I'm not. And I'm completely aware of the fact that being a bourgeois, I, I, I know all the code. I speak French, I speak English, I can travel, I have a passport. When I go in a hotel or in a restaurant, I know exactly how to behave. I, I'm not afraid. I'm not uh, uncomfortable. And um, I don't want to be a hypocrite and to, to do as if I was. And I'm completely conscious that the class for me is the more most important it's even more important than race today i think look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do i even say other than hey <sighs> well that's why they're introducing an all-new bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier starting the chat better and dating safer They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I want to ask you about what happened... I'm going to ask you about the rest of the trilogy in a moment, but I want to hold fire a little bit. But I want to ask about the next generation, because I think I can see the direction in which this trilogy might go, perhaps a little bit like Chinua Chaber's Things Fall Apart, about the way in which a colonial history travels or it haunts generations a, a kind of there's a kind of transgenerational haunting and at, at the end of the novel the, the the struggle for independence has become violent and Aisha the daughter is watching it with fascination and I wondered whether what your thoughts are as somebody who belongs to this multiple generation of immigrants of of of, of mixed ethnicity when whether the violence of colonialism experienced by one generation must return in some form or be experienced differently by the next generation because it seems to me that seems to be a really important part of, of what you're trying to do with this book project absolutely you know the trauma of, of colonization is big it's huge and i think that what i am what i feel my my vision of the world, my my work also is still very much influenced by the experience of colonization, even if it's not an experience that I've lived in my flesh, but it's the childhood of my mother and it's the life of my grandparents. And I'm always surprised when I, I go to presentation, especially in France, and people say, oh, no, not again, colonization, it's far, we don't care anymore, it's in the past, we should forget about that. And I'm like, no, it's not really in the past it's still the present what we are today the the relationship between morocco and france the question of immigration islamism you can't understand that if you don't understand colonization and um i'm, I'm always surprised by by that by the fact that a lot of people don't want to look uh, at this uh, at this period of, of time don't want to talk about it and um of course i'm still i think very much influenced by that i wouldn't speak french if my country was not colonized i wouldn't be so much influenced by the french culture by all that i wouldn't have studied in france my destiny would have been completely different in a good and in a bad way probably i don't know maybe i wouldn't have maybe today i would be in a house with a veil no schools i don't know i i can't imagine what it would have been but um, what is absolutely sure is that colonization still has a lot of consequences today yeah, I I always find it a fascinating thought experiment for the the descendants or the children of migrants to think about where would you be if that 
that journey had not happened. It is a, a kind of astonishing thought experiment. And it reminds you how precarious history is, um, how our fortunes are changed by, by whim and by, both by whim and by great political moments too, which you may not have much control. And as you were talking about the, this colonial history, I, I was thinking about how in, in Britain at the moment we're having, as I suspect in many countries, we're having a great, reappraisal of the ways that we tell our national histories. And I wonder how much of this colonial history, the one that you're writing in your novel, is taught in France and how widely known it is. You know, in France, as you said, like in Britain or in Germany, we are speaking more and more about colonialism, but it's we are just at the beginning, I think. For instance, I uh, was part of a very big documentary about colonization, the consequence of colonization that was shown on, on national TV in, in France. And I was surprised because there was not so much uh, reaction as if people were like, OK, it was very bad. We We did bad things, but... It's not my fault. It was the grandparents that are d- dead now. Let's not talk about this kind of uh, of things. You can feel that people are very uncomfortable with that. And um, there is this idea that we should be proud of being French. Why those people always want to say bad things about this country and this country is providing so much things for them. And then they are ungrateful. So it's a very, it's a very bad thing. No, that, that, that's fascinating. And it's a, it's a very tense debate in some ways but I think fiction has a role to play actually maybe in in absolutely yeah because you know I think that in literature what is very important is that we are not here to judge the point of my book is not to say there were good people bad people or just to say colonization is bad if it's just to say that I don't need to write a, a novel but it's to try to to tell stories about this period, as I said, with a certain sense of nuance and of complexity, and to say, okay, there were bad people, bad colonists, but also very simple individuals who just came there to work and have a farm, and who had Moroccan friends or Moroccan lovers, and who spent the, their whole life there. And I think it's very important to, yeah, to try to be complex and try also to to give a certain place to ambiguity and to grey, as I said. Yeah, thank you, Leila. We we have lots of questions. So let, let's turn to our audience to, to see what they have to say. I'm going to remind the audience too that, again, you can ask a question by clicking on the ask a question button under the video screen and remember to press send and your question will come to me and I'll try to get through as many of them as I can. But there are quite a few. So th- this is a question I, I also want to know the answer to. Was there a tension, Leila, in your family from you writing about their personal history? How, how have they responded? No, I'm very lucky because they are all dead. So there was no tension. <laughs> the only living people, <laughs> person is my mother. And my mother is, uh, you know, what she cares about is that I'm happy. And she told me, I'm going to read it. If it's a good book, I don't care what you write in it. And um, if it's not a good book, you will have to rewrite it. And I think she liked it. The only thing is that now when she goes to the supermarket, a lot of people tell her, oh, I didn't know that your mother and your and your father has such a sexual, uh, <laughs> sexual life. So she has to speak about the sexual life of my grandparents (laughs) I think that's the only thing that annoys her yeah I can I I can understand why that might be a bit uncomfortable um 
Actually, I was going to ask whether it's interesting that that you're 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 free in this way to be able to write about your 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 family. But I wonder if the book has the book been translated into Arabic? Will it be? Yes, it's always the first translation. I always uh, ask for the first translation to be in Arabic. Yeah. So, and do you know what the response has been in Morocco to the book? I think that in Morocco, you know, they were very proud that someone would write a trilogy about modern Morocco. You know, in Morocco, we read a lot of. American books, uh, British books, French books, and we watch movies coming also from the West, a lot of saga. And um, I think that we are a little bit frustrated uh, to see a lot of stories with characters called Marie, John, uh, and things like that, and that we would like sometimes that those characters would be called Mohammed or Aisha or Amin and to say that we have a history too we we make love and we have desire and we have ambition and we have a history we are not just Muslim or just migrants or just you know people in little boxes like that so I think they were they were happy they were proud that's nice to hear um this is a question about uh, maybe, maybe this is connected about translation do, do you worry about how your books are read in Anglophone societies? Is something missing if it isn't read by someone with a knowledge of French history and culture? You know, some things are maybe missing, but some things are added also. For instance, in, in France, people are very uncomfortable when it comes to speak about race or um, also about colonization, as I was saying. And in the US or in Great Britain, it's very much, it's easier to speak about post-colonial stu- studies or to speak about race or to speak about uh, uh, métissage, as I, I say in the book, mixed-race couple. And um, I think that I learn also a lot of things from uh, people interviewing me in the in the Anglophone countries. And also the vision of the colonization was uh, pretty different. So it's very interesting to to have the confrontation between the two point of view in terms of uh, of colonization. So no, no, I'm not afraid. At the, on the contrary, I'm very curious always to to learn about that. And I have to say also that uh, in France, I was a little bit disappointed by the fact that. Uh, a lot of people who made reviews about my book said it's a book about women, about uh, the disillusion, uh, all this intimacy, all that, but not a political book. And I think that even if I'm a woman, uh, I write political books. I think that a book like Lullaby is uh, about politics. I think that a book like Adele, even if it's about a sex addict, it's politics. And a book like The Country of Others is a political book. But there is something in France, this idea that a woman who writes about history and with the main characters being women, it's not very political. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, intimate, it's uh, something about women or that, but it's not political. And in the Anglophone countries, I think it's different. The political yeah, point of view is uh, more, more stressed. Yeah, I think that must be right. I think that it's very clear that Mathilde's desire, her feelings, her life is enfolding against a very particular political context, but also that she has, a, she is political, as you Absolutely. say. Yeah, I think that's very clear. This is a question about uh, your narrators. Did you choose to use an omnipresent narrator to weave this plot so that we would have a balanced understanding of the characters and not only see the story from Mathilde's point of view? I think this is a compliment. I think this worked well, they say. 
Thank you. I tried um, to have many point of views, and you will see in the book that you change of there is there are changes of narrators very often. Sometimes you are with someone, and up oh, there's a shift, and we, you are with someone else, and that's the whole point of the book to say that where is the truth? Where is the the the, the reality? Everyone looks at the world in a certain way and thinks that it's the truth. It's the way the world is, but. As soon as you change point of view, you can understand that it's not the only way to, to look at the world. And I wanted things to be very moving uh, because I don't want the, my reader to, to be kept in one vision of the world. I want him to be always, uh, you know, I don't know how to say in English, to, to have to change all the time point of view and sometimes to feel himself uncomfortable. I don't know what I think. I don't know if I like her or not. I don't know if I agree with her or, or not. And I think that at that time, in the, the, those circumstances in this family it was very difficult to really know what you think which side you're going to, to choose so I wanted to be always moving I, I, I'm remembering at the beginning when, when Mathilde is writing home to her family she doesn't want to betray how unhappy she is or her discomfort and so she writes in all the the typical orientalist tropes so she writes about gins and she writes about the marketplace and Eve and things but then of course her her own so she 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 is a kind of she's she's trading in a kind of orientalist vision of of Morocco but then of course her experience of it and your writing of it has to be much more authentic and so her own view is shifting too of course and so ours does as well as we as we read with her which seems to be a very important strategy yeah I wondered if you've been thinking about that about how to write in how to write Morocco inside Morocco and with all of those in the context of all of those literary tropes and stereotypes and cliches, how you both present those and the critique of those and, and the truth of those too, I guess. Yeah, I tried to use them because at the beginning I was like, okay, I'm, I will try to avoid any kind of folklore, any kind of orientalism. I hate that. But then I understood that it was impossible to avoid them completely, especially uh, in the 40s and the 50s where uh, a woman like Mathilde, of course, is influenced by that. And of course, when she arrives there, because, you know, I found pictures of my grandmother. And in the 50s, when she was in the Medina, you can see my grandmother so tall, so blonde, and behind her, people wearing, you know, the jellaba like it at, at the beginning of the century. So it was impossible not to have this orientalist uh, point of view. So I tried to use them, and I tried to make something of of them, but. Of course, I wanted also the reader to to see another Morocco, the Morocco that I know. And I tried to use the emotion I had when I was a child. And the fact that I uh, wrote this book when I was in France and not in Morocco helped me a lot because I had to remember of my own childhood in the farm, of the sensation of uh, of the of the the heat of the the taste of oranges, the way my grandmother used to bake the the the, the bread, and all those things, and the, the, all the remembering of my childhood and the nostalgia of my childhood mm. helped me a lot to try to convey real and authentic emotion about yes. Morocco. Yeah, yeah, I, I I can see that. But there's a question here about well politics and Islamophobia in France at the moment, and the question is asking you about. The criticism that France receives often for its commitment to secularism, 
for example, banning the burqa, which has been perceived by some as Islamophobia. What are your thoughts on the country's position on such issues? That's a huge question, but I wonder if one one way to ask you a question about this book might be to ask what it's like to be a French writer with a particular cultural role writing about Islamic culture in this particular moment. Is there a responsibility and a burden there too? Yeah, of course. I think that what I could answer is that when you are a woman living in a Muslim country where Islam is the religion of the state, you are supposed to be a Muslim, so you don't have the right to eat during Ramadan. You don't have the right to lose your virginity. You can go to prison uh, because of adultère. You don't have the right to be homosexual. You, If you divorce from a man and marry another man, you lose the custody of your, of your child. You can I- inherit the same as a boy. So a lot of things. Uh, And people tell you this is like this because this is because of Islam. Of course, when you live in a situation like that, you crave for uh, secularism. Like I would love to live in a country where I have the right to choose my religion and where uh, outside of my where religion is something private and I do whatever I want and outside I would not be judged in in a court because of my religion or or even in a religion that I don't believe in so I'm completely for the principle of secularism and I think that living in a country like like France for me it's I consider it like a chance because I'm I feel completely free no one is asking me any question about my my religion and my children go to school and we don't know about the religion of his of his friend and it's it's very good but I think that in the past five or ten years um, there is a, a political and a bad political vision of this secularism and people are trying to mask and to hide Islamophobia behind this uh, secularism and it's very easy to manipulate that and to say no I don't have nothing against uh, Muslim but I don't want a, a woman with a veil to go with children outside you know when they go outside after after school to despise women with a veil to be very violent and racist through men who shows that they are religious so uh, for the principle, I'm very for the principle, but I also completely conscious of the fact that many people hide uh, their Islamophobia, Islamophobia behind what they call laicity. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that answer. It's very honest of you. A, a question here about, it's a quite general question, but a nice question. I always think this is a very nice question to ask writers. And often it's asked by people who are aspiring writers. So that's always rather nice. Was writing something that you always knew that you wanted to do? And what advice would you give to aspiring writers? I've always knew that I was going to be a writer. I think that I was maybe six or seven when uh, my mother one day at dinner, she said, Leila is going to be a writer. And <laughs> I always do what my mother says. So I was like, okay, I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> and when I was a teenager, I was reading a lot of things about writers' life, Baudelaire and uh, De Nerval and Flaubert, and they all had a lot of passion and they used to take drugs and alcohol and they had syphilis. And I was like, wow, I want this life. I want to take <laughs> drugs and have syphilis. So then I discovered that to be a writer you have to write and you have to to work and it's not only about drugs and alcohol and and love and um if i would have to give an advice is to be completely sincere 
to have no fear. And especially when you are a woman, not be afraid of disappoint, not be afraid of being misunderstood. You, you can begin to write when you accept the idea that you will not be loved and you will not be understood. Uh, you can't write with um, the objective that people will adore you, worship you. You have to accept the idea that maybe no one will read you, no one will understand you, that maybe you will be attacked for things that you didn't even do or think, but it's something that you have to do for yourself. And you write for yourself. You you write with your, your guts, with your freedom. So you can write whatever you want, even if people hate that, even if no one understands you. So you have to be sincere and brave. Did your feelings about being a writer and your approach to writing change after the reception that Lullaby received uh, in France and, of course, around the world? Of course, because I think that there is a difference between being a writer and being a famous writer. And maybe there is a paradox or even a, an oxymoron. Um, a writer shouldn't be famous. And I think that all the writers who became famous discovered that Steinbeck or Hemingway, they all say that's absolutely ridiculous. We should publish books without the names. Uh, we should stay always in the dark. We sh should always stay hidden. And uh, now if I would... If I had to redo it, maybe I wouldn't even say my name and I would refuse a lot of things, but now it's yeah. too late. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very dangerous. Success is very dangerous. And uh, celebrity is very dangerous for a writer because when you have the taste of it, you want to, you don't want to quit it and you're afraid that you will not have success again and that uh, people won't like you again. So you have to be criticized. You have to uh, had, uh, have bad experiences and then, you can go back to work and I think that's all that matters. It, uh, it is all that matters. I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed that, that what you've done subsequently is different, that you're writing different things. In fact, and writing historical fiction must be a new adventure for you. Is, is it, does it require a different skill set? Is it harder? Are there challenges? Yes, it's, it's harder. And, um, you know, when I had the concours and uh, after one year, I said to my publisher, I have to do something that seems impossible to me. I have to do something that is very, very difficult for me. And the idea of writing a trilogy with a lot of characters in a different period of time, with characters that I was going to follow from the birth to the to the death, At the beginning, I was like, it's impossible. I will never be able to do that. And I think that for any artist, if you want to preserve your creativity, you have to to find uh, impossible things to do. If you try to do things that you can do, if it's easy, it's not a good thing. Yeah, I, that, that, I, think, I think that's right. I've had many writers say that. I've, I've also had many writers say that the, the, the pandemic has been... For, for some writers, it's been paralyzing. It's been very, very difficult to write. But I wonder what your experience has been as a writer. Have you, has it affected your writing practice? Yes, but, um, I think it affected my writing. And, um, because what I wrote was probably very more sad or melancholic or even darker than what I do usually. <laughs> really? So you can imagine <laughs> that it's yeah. terrible. But, you know, I, I, I'm someone who works a lot. I've always been working a lot. I need to work all the time. So the truth is that it didn't change a lot 
in my my day to day life because as a writer I wake up in the morning and I stay alone in my office and I and I write. So what I used to do before I did it after. The the only difference is that I have my children now in in the house and I can hear them shouting. But that's the only difference. Yes. Well, they make for fun moments in an interview. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely. Um, the, the last question from the audience is the, the question that I think we all want the answer to. Um, can you give us some insight into what the next book in the trilogy will include? Is it, all, is it yeah. already mapped out? It's finished. Almost finished. Oh, I have okay. one scene left. Yes, it's during the. It begins during the the summer of uh, 1969, and it's a very particular summer in Morocco because it's the hippie summer. All the hippies came in in Morocco in Essaouira, and Jimi Hendrix spent uh, a, a week in in Essaouira. We don't really know what he did, but in the book I try to imagine what he did. He did, and it involves a lot of sex and drugs and music. And I I wanted to show this very little moment in Morocco where people from the generation of my parents had the the illusion that maybe this country was going to be the country for youth, for freedom, for after the independence, you know, they had this ideal of uh, anti-capitalism and anti-war and uh, love for everyone and the flower power. And uh, of course, in the beginning of the, of the seventies, like in many countries, the, 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 the the, the, the king Hassan the, the second he decided to repress there was a big repression in, in Morocco and I want to show that the fact that people from the generation of my parents they had a lot of disillusion and also it's, it is a book about being becoming a bourgeois my mother as you saw in the, the first book because she inspired the character of Aisha she's a poor woman coming from the farm and she's going to become one of the first doctors of her country she's going to become a bourgeois and live in a house with a swimming pool and I want to try to express what it was for those people to from a generation to another to become a bourgeois and to become the elite of a, of a country, uh, although their own parents sometimes were very dominated and were poor people. My other grandmother, she couldn't read or, or write. So I wanted to show the gap between those two generations. We, that's something for us to look forward to. And it's, it's lovely to know that the characters that we've come to know just beginning to know will now we'll get to know again in the in the coming books um <laughs> perhaps it will turn into a tetralogy maybe the before Leila. we'll see we'll uh, see <laughs> <laughs> it's lots for us to look forward to thank you so much for asking answering our audience questions it's been really wonderful uh talking to you uh, really fascinating actually learning about the background to the book i found it really really involving and educational as well i learned so much from it so thank you so much for that thank you leila thank you very much